welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician and CMIO and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, covering the news to know for the week of March 9th, 2020. So let's talk about the most important article of the week. You may be thinking it's a coronavirus article, or perhaps it has to do with HIMSS cancellation, which is another big deal, but it's not. The most important article that came out on Friday is the one by Jackie Dries, where she interviewed me. And so I am not above some self-promotion here. I'm going to give you a couple of highlights from my article. While not quite yet at Nirvana, Peninsula Regional Medical Center's Physician Builder Program boosts EHR satisfaction. I'll read you a few lines. After recognizing its provider satisfaction levels with its epic EHR were not as high as it wanted, Salisbury, Maryland-based Peninsula Regional Medical Center about a year ago launched a Physician Builder Program with the goal of fostering a relationship between its IT and clinical community. The physicians involved with this program tackle a wide berth of IT initiatives, including building new functionalities within Epic, working with the EHR analysts, reviewing workflows, and collaborating with providers to train them on different features. Here's a quote from me. As physician builders, we have to always be thinking of how do we justify our existence, which is different than normal physicians. Physicians can usually just think, okay, I'm seeing patients, and that justifies their existence. This is a different world. Showing that physician builders can make physicians' lives easier while also cutting costs illustrates physician builders' positive impact on the organization as a whole. While the process requires balance among IT staff and clinicians, the relationships that are cultivated through the program are ultimately instrumental to driving provider and patient satisfaction rates. So if you don't have a physician builder program at your organization, maybe there's some tidbits in here you can take and use for ammunition. I find these programs incredibly useful. And the pushback is, well, it's too expensive to have physicians in the EHR building. That's not what you should be measuring. You're measuring the return on investment that they can produce by knowing the system well and therefore can drive quality improvements, reduce the cost of care, reduce length of stay, and help impact the things the hospital and the patients and the providers do care about. So that was what this article was about, was making my case for why physician builders are so important. And it's not so much about what they actually build. And I'll tell my builders, I don't care if stuff that you build never makes it into production. I do not sit there and say, you must produce 20 projects a month or you're done. I don't care how many projects make it into production. I care about how much they learn. I care that they understand the functionality and can speak the language of IT that we need them to be able to speak for their particular specialties. And that's my two cents on my own article. So I guess we should talk about, hey, HIMSS was canceled. If you've never been to HIMSS, it's 40,000 people with an exhibit hall that's the biggest things I've ever seen for, for exhibition just hundreds of thousands of square feet of vendors, 1,300 vendors will display. And the big ones like Epic and Cerner, of course, their booths take up the size of like a football field. So this is a big deal when this thing cancels. It's a big deal for the vendors because one, they've spent a ton of money getting ready for this thing. Even if 
they get their money back for their booth fee from Hims, they still spent a ton of money getting hotels, getting airlines, which may or may not be refundable, and shipping all their stuff down there, all their promotional giveaway stuff. So it's a big deal. And this is where the vendors like to connect with those who make decisions in healthcare IT. If you haven't been, it's really, it's worthwhile. Hopefully next year's hymns will go on, the show must go on, and you uh, should definitely make that one of the conferences that you attend next year. So just to give you a little bit on the impact here, the annual conference is a major source of revenue for hymns. In 2018, HIMSS reported 43 million in revenue from conferences and meetings, according to an IRS form. Its total revenue was 94 million. So a little under half of its revenue came from the conference. Imagine having to give back half, a little less than half of your revenue as a company. That would not make your CFO happy. This is going to have a huge economic impact for both big companies and small companies, said Pam Arlotto, president and CEO of Healthcare Consultancy, Maestro Strategies. For a lot of people, this is where they touch base with their customers and do a lot of their business development. And I think that's true. So maybe next year, uh, I was disappointed. I was prepared to give a talk. We were going to talk about a clinical decision support tool, IBM Watson's Micromedics, how we were able to embed that inside Epic and keep providers in their workflow while they're trying to answer questions that come up during the course of their day. So I'm hoping to be able to get some audience to put that out there, but maybe again, maybe it's next year's hymns. So one of the major pieces of news, and matter of fact, by the time you are listening to this, it probably will have dropped, is that HHS interoperability rule is expected on Monday. The Trump administration is widely expected to release major rules on Monday, dictating how electronic health information is shared with patients and between providers. The administration was on track to release the much anticipated final rules on interoperability and data blocking at HIMSS, where President Donald Trump was scheduled to speak on Monday, but that was canceled because of the COVID-19 outbreak. The Office of Management and Budget posted a notice stating that it had conducted its concluded its review of the proposed rules on Friday. So as most of you know, this is a little bit controversial. There are patient advocacy groups out there saying, yes, give us our data. And then there are others who are particularly on the provider side or the vendor side who are saying, no, no, it's a privacy problem. Giving third party vendors an API into the EHR is a bad idea because they're not held to the same data privacy standards that others are, and they could misuse this data. So both sides are, of course, correct. We, we do need to be able to share the data with the patients, and it should be easy. And at the same time, we need to keep it safe. Um, this is, you know, in terms of what to expect from this final rule, here's a quote from HHS Secretary Alex Azar. I want to be quite clear. Patients need and deserve control over their records. So I think they're going to move forward with what they had proposed, and I'm not expecting tremendous surprises in that regard. It's not what some of the EHR vendors wanted. I think that this will explode a marketplace full of apps that will tap into your EHR and become little pockets of best in breed rather than having a huge EMR that's enterprise-wide, 
but may not be best for a particular niche. Uh, I just don't see the hematology oncology specialist that just focuses perhaps on sickle cell is going to get their needs met by something as large as an Epic or a Cerner. But there could be an app developer out there that's absolutely devoted to this that can produce just what that physician needs. And you will see an app store that grows up from this that'll be tremendous. So that's what I'm expecting to happen. I don't know how long it'll take. I think once the rule comes out, you'll start seeing some action pretty quickly. Next article. This one also comes out of Becker's. Patients say portals have biggest impact on health engagement class. Fine. So class did a study. This is class research. That's KLAS if you're not familiar with them. Here's what they said. Most patients consider patient portals as the engagement technology that best simplifies their experience and helps them participate in their care. For its patient engagement 2020 report, CLASS surveyed more than 300 patients about which patient engagement technologies have been most impactful to them. So the patient portal, 58%. It was uh, the biggest, the highest one. And then being able to talk to your doctors next and then appointment reminders and self-scheduling. Going down towards the bottom, which is what really shocks me, well, online bill pay being down towards the bottom is not terribly shocking. Patients aren't terribly excited about paying their bills. But telehealth being at an extremely low number, 4% said that telehealth was the most impactful thing to them. And I think that's really a reflection of not a lot of providers are offering it perhaps, so they're not as familiar with the tools as they could be. And the other possibility is it's really just for managing the low-level acute visit stuff that they can get done at their urgent care. So it hasn't really impacted them. I think that will change over time, but for the moment, telehealth is not considered important. I think that's worth noting. Next article. Come to a hospital and IBM pilot a blockchain app that allows patients to control who views their medical records. This is also out of Becker's, March 4th. University Health Network in Toronto is partnering with technology leaders, including IBM, to test a blockchain mobile application that allows patients to grant access to their health data to anyone of their choosing. The health system tapped IBM, eHealth, and Blockchain Research Institute for the project, which is currently in trial stages. The blockchain-based app will allow University Health Network patients to securely send a record of their health data to anyone they want, including their family members, physicians, and medical researchers. Blockchain technology provides more security than traditional record keeping systems because it creates a record of the data and then sends that record to trusted computer servers or nodes, according to the report. The blocks of data are sent to various nodes, which makes it more difficult for hackers to alter the records. So here's my understanding. I'm not a blockchain expert, but if you picture right now, if you wanted to have an audit of who looked at your medical record, you could go to your EHR and you have in one place a ledger that's going to show you who accessed the record. There's reports that can be run that can show you this. With a blockchain solution, rather than having it all in one ledger, now you're going to distribute that ledger. So a piece of the record will sit in one person's cell phone, another one sits somewhere else across the world, and it gets distributed all over the place. And these things stay in sync so that an update made on one node will spread to the others. So if that's where my medical record is stored, if someone hacked into my personal equipment 
they're going to get just a piece of, of something that they probably won't be able to make into intelligible information. So blockchain has tremendous value, I think, in being able to secure patient medical records. And then the patient can control, okay, I'm in an emergency room, I need this doctor to see it, and then being able to share access with others. I think it has great potential. I'm thrilled to see this. And CMIOs, I encourage all of us to keep an eye on it. Uh, it's in pilot phase now, obviously, so it's nothing that we have to run out and buy. But it's worth watching that. Oh, it's another nice article out of it. Beckers, 35% of hospital execs regret their EHR choice, survey finds. So three points that they make. If an EHR vendor doesn't provide the tool a hospital needs, 56% of respondents said they would seek out other health IT vendors to fulfill its needs rather than wait for their current vendor to offer the tool. And so I think that point's important because this is where you get stuck with investing some money in a solution from a third-party vendor, you get the integration working, and then your EHR vendor eventually comes out with it. It may not be as good at first. They eventually perfect it and get it down. And then you've spent money on a tool which you didn't need, but you got that tool years before anyone else did who was waiting for the technology. So there's a trade-off and as CMIOs, you're gonna be making these decisions and they're tough decisions to make. Sometimes you want that market edge and it pays to put in that time and effort uh, to get it done first. Because sometimes your EHR vendor saying, yeah, yeah, we're gonna do it, we'll get to it. That could mean three to five years. So you have no way of knowing it's not in your control. So interesting, 56% though of respondents, and I believe these are, yeah, these are C-suite executives said that they would go elsewhere. 27% of respondents said they believe the EHR will fail to meet their hospital's future needs. And the number three is outside the EHR, the top area hospitals have already invested in IT solution that includes data analytics, cybersecurity, rev cycle management, and patient engagement. So in other words, already we don't depend entirely on our EHR. That makes sense. The EHRs can't do everything if this interoperability rule does what I think it's going to do, then I think there's going to be more competition and maybe the EHR vendors will be faster to market with some of their tools. Otherwise, they're going to get eaten for lunch by Silicon Valley. Last article, it comes from a journal called Future Medicine. And on LinkedIn, I follow another doctor, C.T. Lin, out of the University of Colorado. And he posted a link to this. And I thought it was a really cool article. CT, if you don't follow his blog, he posts, I don't know, maybe once a month or so. But whenever he posts, it's really good stuff. So here's the, the title of the article. Clinical implementation of pharmacogenetics via health system-wide research biobank, the University of Colorado experience. And it was published February 20th. So just to give you the gist of what it is that they did here. It sounds like they've been collecting patient specimens and running the, the genetics on it. I think they have over 53,000 individuals who have given uh, their DNA for genomic analysis. So the question came about is how are they going to do their projects? How do you prioritize which ones you're going to tackle? What's the ethical focus on these? And so they had a pharmacogenetics implementation committee that was formed in August of 2016 with the goal of making selected pharmacogenetic tests from the biobank research study participants available for use in UC Health's EHR. 
And so there were, looks like there was about six work groups that got together. One that looked at the clinical validity of what they were trying to do. Another one looked at the technical side of being able to integrate it into the EHR. And they had a clinical decision support piece and an educational piece and then something that was evaluating. And there, there was other pieces there, but you get the gist of what they were trying to do. Here's the first thing that they did is they looked at the CYP2C19 variants as the first pharmacogenetic results to return to the EHR. And this is because Plavix, clopidogrel, was the first CYP2C19 affected drug that they wanted to look at. As a prodrug, clopidogrel is metabolized in part by CYP2C19 to an active metabolite. And studies have shown that certain variants of the gene can cause enzyme abnormalities that interfere with the metabolism of clopidogrel, which puts affected patients at risk for thrombotic events following acute coronary syndrome or PCI. As such, we set out to develop a clinical decision support tool for clopidogrel in relation to CYP2C19 genotype in the setting of ACS and PCI. So this is more about what they did here. They developed an interruptive alert that notifies a prescribing clinician when they order clopidogrel in the inpatient setting for a patient who is genetically mediated CYP2C19 intermediate or poor metabolizer and has had a documented PCI within the past year. The CDS alert identifies the problem, provides an actionable recommendation to change the medication order, displays pertinent information to endorse the recommendation, the genotype, phenotype, and link to references, and provides the clinician with options to explain their reasons for not following the recommendation. The actionable recommendation includes the option to cancel the order for clopidogrel and choose one of the two suggested alternatives, which I have a hard time pronouncing, but it's Effiant and Berlenta are the uh, trade names. It looked like in their group of participants that they were looking at, 26% were intermediate and 3% were poor metabolizers. So a big chunk of the patients had this gene abnormality. They don't give a lot of details about how often the alert fired or did people take those recommendations. I have, maybe that's still to come, but I didn't see it here in the study. But they did say a major lesson learned was that across a large health system, clinical workflows vary extensively. For a given drug gene pair, our ultimate goal was to build a single clinical decision support solution that works seamlessly across the system. However, in some cases, technical builds differed because of upstream differences in clinical workflows or formularies. For example, in delivering clopidogrel CDS alerts for post-PCI patients with at-risk CYP2C19 genotypes, clinicians in different regions and provider groups place orders or order sets at different times within the clinical encounter. In addition, the format and content of order sets vary across the health system. Accordingly, we had to take this significant variation into account when designing the clinical decision support. And in some cases, we had to change the technical build to accommodate these differences. So my commentary here is, it's good to see that I'm not the only one who struggles in trying to get rid of some variability in our order sets. It looks like University of Colorado's got uh, the same problem. So work for all of us to do in this space in terms of reducing that variability. And I could picture in some places where a doctor just turns to the nurse and says, this is what I want you to give. And in others, you have the actual provider sitting down touching those order sets. So all that variability has to be worked out for something like this to work. So anyway, I thought it was 
a neat article. As CMIOs, we should definitely be looking for how this personalized medicine is going to get implemented. And this is a great example of it. This is what the future will look like. We'll see this a lot more and on grander scales coming up. And so that is our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.